Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is New Books in Science Fiction. I'm your host, Rob Wolf, and welcome to the This Airlock Has Teeth edition of the pod. Today I'm heading into deep space with David Wellington, a prolific writer who's told tales about zombies, vampires, werewolves, special forces operatives, and now space explorers. His newest novel, The Last Astronaut, will be out and available for purchase just about the time this episode drops. And I'm happy to have David Wellington with me in person today in a cozy studio in Midtown Manhattan. Thanks for trekking in from Queens to be on the show. Oh, thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. I usually do interviews over the phone and Skype, so it's really special to talk to you face-to-face. Let's talk a bit about your career. You got your start as a writer in the early aughts by writing a novel online, I understand, and posting it yourself in regular serialization. Were you intending to start a career, or was that just something you were doing for fun? And how have things played out for you, and how did you get to where you are today as the author of now 21 books? Yeah, no, it was not uh, intended to start a career. In fact, it was the opposite. I had given up. I had uh, spent my entire life up until that point uh, you know, I think I was in my early 30s, and I, and I had been trying to get published since I was a kid. I'd been writing since I was six years old and had really no luck at all. I published a few short stories here and there, but nothing even in a major market. And I moved to New York thinking to be closer to the publishing industry and increase my chances, and that turned out to be true, but not in the way I thought. So I ended up, uh, one of my best friends in the world uh, had a blog, and he was tired of doing the blog. This is back when blogs were the big thing. This was 2003. I don't know if anybody even remembers those those days, uh, lost in the midst of history. But so blogs were a big deal, and you could get attention for doing something new on a blog. And so my friend said he didn't want to do his blog anymore, uh, so I should put my writing on it. And I was like, well, but I write novels. It's You can't just put a novel on a blog. So he said, well, you know, just put up a chapter every, say, three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and we'll see how it goes. And I said, great, you know, give me about six months to research and outline and plot out something. And he said, no, you start on Monday. And so I ended up writing this book in real time, essentially. Uh, I would write, the, write a chapter, post it on the, on the blog, and two days later, write the next chapter and post it on the blog. And it was nerve-wracking. Uh, it was not how I normally wrote, um, but I learned an enormous amount from doing that. And also – got a lot of attention. The first post, the first chapter, I think, got 17 views, most of whom were my family. And then uh, by the end of the first month, uh, I had something like 40,000 people reading it every, every, you know, three times a week. And so it took five months to publish the whole thing. And by the time those five months were over, I was contacted by a publisher 
uh, very small press who said, you know, I'd like to make this a print book. And I said, yes, please. Uh, This is what I've been wanting my whole life. And we did a trilogy of those. And then uh, I got picked up by a larger publisher for the next trilogy. And yeah, I've been doing this as my profession since 2003. It sounds a bit like Charles Dickens. I don't really know if he wrote three chapters in a week, but he did serialize and he was very prolific. And he was writing under tight deadlines, I think. I don't think he wrote about zombies either, but I could be wrong about that. I haven't read all of of Dickens. And how did you generate interest from your initial 17 to 40,000 in a month? And this this is in a day before social media. Well, this is really at the start of social media, but also we had a lot of attention from uh, other blogs, uh, you know, and from uh, traditional media, in fact. The New York Times picked up a story about it and and ran with it. It was a little mention, but it was enough to get a lot of attention. (laughs) Back then, you know, newspapers were the the big deal, right? So, um, yeah, we got picked up a number of places, mostly online. Um, we did, ran a couple of promotions. Uh, two people got their names put in the book as I was writing it because they referred it to friends. And it was fascinating because it was a zombie book, uh, extremely gory and violent. And so the two winners of that contest, I, I wrote to them and I was like, look, this is not going to be a pleasant appearance in the book. And, and like do you want me to make you zombies? Do you want me to make you victims? Because if you're victims, you're going to have horrifying deaths. And they both said, yes, bring it on. Give us the most disgusting, gory deaths possible. And so not to uh, alarm anybody listening to this now, but so in in that book, one person gets dragged down the street by their entrails. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just, you know, dragged uh, like by a rope. I didn't even know that was possible. Yeah, well, it may not be, but it worked in the book. Uh, and, you know, I, the other person met an even worse fate. But yes, so we had a, we did a lot of promotion, but it was very grassroots. It was very do-it-yourself. And that was kind of the excitement of it. It was, this, it was something nobody had ever really done before. Uh, this whole serialization of a novel online was brand new. There were maybe two or three other people doing it. Stephen King had experimented with it, but then kind of lost interest. And so, you know, it was exciting for people, this brand new medium in a way. Uh, and it was exciting for me. It was, you know, it was just a crazy time in my life. I was writing constantly uh, and responding to comments. Pe- people would comment on a chapter and I would have to like, in, you know, incorporate their comments into the next chapter. There was at one point, and I know better, to, I, I would not do this now. I know better now. But there was somebody had figured out a big plot twist. And in the comment for chapter 13, say, they said, oh, by chapter 20, this person's going to be dead. And I was like, oh, yeah, it was supposed to happen in chapter 19. So by chapter 19, I was like, okay, well, this person can't be dead. I have to, I have to save this character. And so that character ended up being, uh, you know, surviving and going on throughout the rest of the book with, uh, with the other characters. And so the book changed uh, even as I was writing it. That sounds like the I may be getting this wrong, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle where <laughs> the observer affects the out you know, is affecting sure, the outcome. Yeah. So if someone's witnessing the book being made, they they saved a man's a saved a character's life. And Schrodinger's cat, right? The cat's either alive or dead, depending on whether the author gets scooped or not. 
One thing you must have learned during that initial process of writing the serialization is to write very quickly. Is that a skill you have maintained? Yeah, I think that that's something that all modern writers, contemporary writers, whatever you want to call them, 21st century writers kind of have to learn. The marketplace is so competitive and the thirst for books right now is so great that you're expected as a published author to churn out books at an incredible rate. I know there are still authors out there who will take three years to write a book. And this astounds me. It's actually took me a couple of years to write The Last Astronaut, but in that time I wrote two other novels. It's, it's, it's funny. There is a lot to be said for taking your time while writing and doing it meditatively and very deliberately and getting everything perfectly right. But there's something to be said for writing fast too. When you write fast, you get this energy, you get this flow, and the whole thing just kind of comes together, coalesces. If you know, sometimes it doesn't, and that's a disaster, and it's horrible, and I hate that. But when it does work, just everything—it's the stars align, and everything comes together, and 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 all the characters tell you what they want to do, and and the plot just sort of happens. And it just, it's a wonderful feeling. Uh, Writing fast is is just great. I mean, I've never had writer's block for more than, say, a week or so. And I think that's been the blessing of my life because that we, you know, when I do have writer's block for a week, it's, it's hell. Not being able to do this every day is hell. So, yeah, I mean, I, I write every single day. I write thousands of words a day, and I usually throw out two-thirds of what I write, but then I keep the other third, and I keep moving. Up until fairly recently, you have focused on horror. Could you tell me about your transition from horror to science fiction? Yeah, I don't think there really ever was a transition. It wasn't a moment where I said, I'm going to stop doing one thing and start doing the other. Uh, And in fact, I kind of always wanted to be just a science fiction writer. That was what I wanted to be when I was a kid. Uh, It's what I trained to be. And so what happened was in 2003, when I moved to New York, I started pitching science fiction novels uh, to people. And I was told that science fiction was dead, that it was the, the genre was over, that no one was ever going to bother with science fiction anymore. And as silly as that sounds now, at the time it was devastating. It was, you know, people, yes, of course, science fiction novels were still getting published, but it was mostly established authors, um, you know, or people who had some crazy story to tell had nothing to do with their book. And so it was a really tough time to get a, to get a, bra- a break as a science fiction writer. So uh, the story I ended up writing I thought was science fiction, but it was about zombies. And zombies, of course, are horror. Everybody knows that, right? So I got kind of typecast as a horror writer. I don't mind. I love horror too. I was a huge Stephen King fan when I was a kid uh, and I loved writing horror. I loved writing about vampires and werewolves and all and, and all kinds of things. But I don't want to ever just write one kind of book. I don't ever want to be stuck somewhere and end up writing the same thing over and over. I think that's my idea of hell. Uh, for me, the whole point of writing is to find new things to explore. And so – I have worked in all kinds of different genres, and I think it's been a problem for my career. I think if I had just stayed in my lane, it, would, it might have been easier for me. But, you know, I, I had a bunch of fancy novels I wanted to write, so I wrote them. And they tanked. They were 
you know, horribly received. <laughs> but I still like them. I still think they're, they're good books. Um, you know, I wrote a bunch of thrillers, and that turned out to be a much more crowded market than I was expecting. So I kind of moved away from that. And finally, in 2015, say, I wrote the trilogy of science fiction novels, the Silence Trilogy, which is uh, very different from The Last Astronaut. It's a far future science fiction world. It's kind of like the idea is it's basically the seven samurai, but uh, you know, with starfighters. And I love those books. They were so much fun to write. They were so much fun uh, to work on. You know, right up until the end when uh, I was going to get married, and I had to finish the last book of the trilogy before the wedding. My wife had made that very clear. Uh, and so I had to lock myself in my office for months while she planned the wedding. <laughs> she was such a saint about it. And I, I feel like she. there might have been nights when she like shoved food under the door because I don't remember leaving that office for just months at a time. But it was, uh, it was an incredible experience because I was finally doing what I'd always thought I was going to do. I was writing science fiction, and the books were fantastic, if I say so myself. I love them. Uh, and so this is the follow-up to that. It, it was with Orbit. Those were with Orbit books, and this is also with Orbit books. This was them saying, well, you know, if you're going to be a science fiction writer, what? how do you imagine your next book being? And we went through a whole long process to get to this. But this is a very different story. It's, it's near-future science fiction. It's about – it's about NASA and, and, and what, what's going to happen with NASA in the next, say, 30 years. And then, of course, it branches out from there. Well, now seems like an excellent time to talk about, in fact, The Last Astronaut. Can you set up the story for our listeners? So The Last Astronaut takes place in 2055. Uh, it is a time when the world has changed somewhat. Uh, climate change has become a real problem. Uh, people – very very little of the book actually takes place on Earth. But I spent a lot of time building the world of what 2055 is going to look like. The big problem uh, for the characters of the book is what's happened to NASA. And the idea behind the book is that a number of factors between, say, budget allocations and presidential demands and most uh, importantly, the rise of commercial spaceflight have meant that NASA's budget has been cut year after year after year. And especially after an attempt in 2034 to go to Mars uh, failed spectacularly. So NASA is in decline and in fact is no longer training astronauts. There is still a NASA in 2055 because I believe there will always be a NASA. I think there's a need for it, especially in a world facing the challenge of climate change. NASA does a lot of aeronautical and, and uh, atmospheric research that is crucial to our understanding of climate change. So they're still doing that in 2055, but they no longer have an astronaut core. The book starts with a large object coming into the solar system from some other star. We don't know where. We don't know why it's here. And it's not responding to radio signals. It appears to be artificial, but we don't even know for sure. And NASA needs to respond to this. And so what they do is they reach out to the, the last astronaut they trained, uh, Sally Jansen, who's now 56 years old, which is, of course, very old for an astronaut. But she's also still in incredible shape and she's still the best astronaut that was ever trained. And she's going to lead the mission to this object to find out what it is and what it wants with Earth. 
And from there, things go spectacularly wrong because this is, in fact, a horror novel. Uh, it's it, 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 I, The first couple chapters might give you the wrong impression because it feels very much like science fiction and just science fiction. And it's still a science fiction novel throughout, but after they reach the object, everything turns very dark. And in fact, this is a very, very dark book. Uh, without spoiling too much, it's it's a uh, yeah bad things happen to a number of people in the book. Well, we can talk a little bit more about that, but I wanted to pause for a moment on on what you said about NASA because your vision of the future seems all too true. Thinking of what NASA has accomplished in the past and where it is now, you know, we were on the moon in the '60s and we sent probes to Mars in the '70s. And we really haven't moved much beyond that. I mean, we've sent unmanned probes into the solar system and into the universe, but it's kind of sad. And now they're talking about going back to the moon, but I just heard this morning on the radio talk saying it's a five-year plan. It's going to take at least five years before we can do what we accomplished nearly 50 years ago. Yeah, I could talk for hours about that plan, the fact that it's not going to work, but let's not go there. So because the thing is, I don't want to get too pessimistic on this. I think that uh, we talk about NASA sort of losing sight of its mission, but it really – that's the thing. I think it's more America has lost its sight of its vision. NASA still knows what it wants to do. And yes, there has been less uh, human spaceflight. That's true. We, the International Space Station – is still up there, but we don't really have a way to get to it uh, without the Russians, and that's that's a crying shame. But at the same time, NASA has sent probes to Pluto. If you have any idea how far away Pluto is, it took 10 years for the fastest moving object we ever built to get there. 10 years. It's a long way away. And we have beautiful pictures of Pluto now. We have, you know, probes that are leaving the solar system and are going to carry messages from Earth out into the universe. We have probes that are looking at the sun all day long and finding new things and doing science. The robotic probes that NASA is sending up are still at the core of its mission. And I think that I don't ever want to get down on NASA. I actually interviewed a bunch of astronauts, uh, retired astronauts, when I was writing this book. And it just reminded me how much I've always loved the American space program. Uh, The best story I have about that is that when I was six years old, when I started writing science fiction, I wanted to be an astronaut. Of course I did. I was six years old. And so I wrote a letter to NASA saying, can you tell me what I should do to become an astronaut? And they sent me back a very nice form letter telling me, you know, I should enlist in the military and learn how to fly a plane and all kinds of things. It wasn't until later I found out that you couldn't be an astronaut if you had glasses, which is no longer the case. But it was by the time I had glasses, unfortunately. But so they sent me back this very nice form letter. But they also sent me a manila envelope full of glossy 8 by 10 photographs of rocks on the moon and the Saturn V rocket and the Apollo lander and the space shuttle. These photographs became some of my most prized possessions. I loved these photographs because they they were real. Like I love science fiction. I love the crazy flights of fantasy. I love going into the distant future in a book. But the idea that some of this stuff could be real is still magic to me. And always will be. And I don't want to get down on NASA. I think that NASA still has a huge role to play in in American history. Uh, You know, I think that the current program, it might be a little short-sighted, but we're going to get there. 
Well, without giving too much away, why don't we talk a little bit about the alien presence that you have created in The Last Astronaut? It's quite massive. That's one thing. That's what struck me at first. Maybe you could just share a little bit about what this object is that the four astronauts sent by NASA, led by Sally Jansen, who's actually the only real astronaut. The others were quickly trained. They're astronauts because they're wearing the suits and they're in a spaceship, but they had about three or four months of training. They're going to meet this, this thing, this alien thing. So, so what is it? So the inspiration for the book was in 2017, an object entered our solar system, a real a real object uh, called Oumuamua. And Oumuamua is the first rock that we've seen from another star system. It's not from anywhere in our solar system. We don't even know where it came from. It came from the direction of Vega, but it's been out in space for so long, it could have come from anywhere. It must have been traveling through space for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. And Oumuamua is uh, a rock about 800 feet long. There's a lot of discrepancy about just how big it is because it was moving so fast as it passed through the solar system that we barely got a picture of it. Uh, We barely got a sense of it. A lot of people were concerned that it might be an alien spacecraft. It did some strange things that maybe science can explain and maybe can't. And it's a possibility that it was, in fact, an alien probe. But it moved through our solar system so fast that we couldn't even get a good picture of it. We couldn't get, we certainly couldn't go out and meet it. And so this was a mystery in space. It was, it was fascinating. Most likely, it is just a big, dumb piece of rock. Uh, it's, it's currently out past the orbit of Saturn, and it's so small that we can't even see it anymore. But it's still there, and it could still be taking pictures of Earth for all we know. So I wanted to respond to this. My, uh, the object in my book is very much like a MoMA and, in fact, comes in the same sort of trajectory and uh, initially looks very much like a MoMA, except that this one is uh, several hundred times larger. So it is 80 kilometers long, which is uh, really big. <laughs> 10 kilometers wide. It's the size of an asteroid. And if it hit the Earth, it would be the end of life on Earth. So when it enters the solar system, it's moving very fast. uh, And then it changes course. And that's how we know that it's not just a big rock. Because big rocks in space don't really change course on their own. They, They follow the laws of physics. And this one is obviously coming towards us at incredible speed. And so this is why it's such an absolute necessity that we send people up to find out what this thing is. So you've set up a conflict of purpose, I think, among the different people who are headed to this object. There are the four astronauts sent by NASA, three of whom their imperative seems to be more about establishing communication One's an astrobiologist interested in, you know, are there alien life forms? And there's a fourth person who's really coming from the military, and his imperative seems much more about safety and protecting the Earth. I think they're all interested in protecting the Earth, but they're different priorities. And his is, he's a little more secretive. He's the military guy. And then there are people sent from the private space company, and their purpose is not entirely known, except one presumes it's proprietary and there's a profit motive. And ultimately, all their interests eventually converge. And I suppose one side prevails. There is ultimately 
like all books, it ends. And so I won't say, you know, how it actually ends or, or which of those voices ultimately uh, hold sway. But I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that dynamic that places science and private enterprise and maybe military interests in competition or conflict, maybe friendly competition, maybe not. You know, who usually prevails and who do you think should prevail? Well, this is a big. This is going to be the big story of the 21st century in space science. Uh, so the 20th century was all about not even exploration. It was about firsts. It was about can we get into space? Can we send an, a, a probe out into space like Sputnik? Can we send a human being into space like Yuri Gagarin or John Glenn? Can we go to the moon? Can we land people on the moon? And so on. And we still kind of are in that idea, that paradigm, because we keep talking about sending people to Mars. This is like the big mission, right? Except we're starting to see that there are other things you can do in space. And this is where the 21st century is – the promise of the 21st century kind of lies. So can you make money in space? Because, you know, there are plenty of people out there who want to make money. And if there are things in space that are worth bringing back and selling here, uh, they're going to do it. Um, Maybe people want to build, you know, hotels in space so tourists can go up there. Meanwhile, the military is very interested in space. The thing about space is uh, once you're up there, you, you go everywhere very quickly. You Once you're in orbit around the Earth, you can be over China in 45 minutes. You can be – you can cover the entirety of Russia in half an hour. And if you have weapons up there, you could uh, theoretically attack another country with no chance of – you know, being stopped. There's nothing anybody could do to stop you from, say, launching a missile from space and hitting another country. Uh, so the military is very interested in space. Right now, there are treaties in place kind of stopping that sort of thing. But uh, a number of countries are starting to press back against those treaties. Um, the Chinese have demonstrated that they have a weapon that can destroy satellites uh, in orbit. And the meaning is clear that they are ready to destroy American spy satellites. That could lead to the first war in space. And that war would be pretty devastating for everybody, especially if it spread to the Earth, if you had space weapons firing on the Earth. So that's a huge deal. The other big question is about these commercial spaceflight companies. Right now, you look at, say, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos uh, with uh, SpaceX and Blue Origin, their companies. These guys uh, think they're Tony Stark. They they want to be Iron Man and they want to have spaceships and they want to go to Mars, which is exciting. But their shareholders are less interested in building Mars colonies than they are in, say, mining the asteroids. There are a lot of asteroids. There are trillions of them. And some of them contain very rare metals that almost are impossible to find on Earth. If you could go up there, you could find an asteroid, you know, the size of a house that's made out of solid platinum. Well, platinum goes for something like $400 an ounce, I think. It's pretty expensive down here. So that might be really low. Actually, I haven't priced platinum in a long time. The price will probably drop if they found a house-sized chunk of platinum. Well, it might. But the thing is the platinum has extremely useful properties in electronics. It is uh, a metal that doesn't uh, rust. It doesn't corrode. And it it, uh, uh, conducts electricity even better than, say, copper. So you could use it 
to make microchips that work 10 times better than the ones we have now. If you had an enormous amount of platinum and it was cheap and you had a cheap source of platinum, yes, you could build light bulbs that never burn out and are much more energy efficient and so on. So there is absolutely reason to go up there and bring stuff back. The problem is it's going to cost billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars to get to that point. The NASA, the, the Apollo program back in the 1960s, if in 2019 dollars would have cost something like $100 billion. And that, that was a very modest program in terms of what people are thinking about doing now. The, the moon is next door compared to these asteroids. Uh, and getting these asteroids back to Earth would take much larger rockets. It would take a lot more people and a lot more spaceships. So yes, there the, there's going to be a huge outlay of money to get to this point. But once some company actually spends that money and is in space, they are going to get super rich. And there is going to be a huge drive to do this in, in the 21st century. Now, the problem is, of course, that that impinges on NASA's ability to do things. It impinges on uh, nation states' ability to do things. If Amazon has 10 space stations uh, in, in, in Earth orbit and China decides it doesn't like Amazon anymore, do we have the first war between Amazon and China? You know, it's going to be a very strange time before all these questions get settled and figured out. You referenced before some of the research you did for the book, including speaking to former astronauts, retired astronauts. What other kinds of research did you do to pull the last astronaut together? Uh, the great thing about space stuff is that everything's in press releases. Like every time Boeing conducts another engine test or something, they put out a press release. Every time SpaceX, uh, you know, drops a rocket into the ocean and, and misses its target, uh, they put out a, a just glowing press release about what an exciting adventure this was. And so there is an enormous amount of information out there about space and about uh, space programs. The real problem is filtering through it, is getting through all of the happy talk uh, and finding, you know, what's actually possible, what's actually working. So, for instance, uh, we all know that Elon Musk shot his car into space recently. And it was this huge deal and everybody got so excited about it. And he acted as if this was the greatest accomplishment of his life. It was a terrible disaster. And nobody seems to have noticed. So the thing was, the idea was that he was going to send this car into the orbit, into orbit around the sun, around the same orbit as Mars, on a special orbit that meant it would never actually collide with Mars. But it would prove that he could get to Mars, right? So the rocket misfired. And in fact, that car is now headed on a very elliptical orbit, which basically means that it's going to go very, very far out, out into the asteroid belt. And then it's going to come back and come, you know, flash by Earth very quickly and then around the sun again uh, over a course of many years. This is not going to happen tomorrow. But there's no guarantee that that car now is not going to hit Mars or it's not going to hit Earth. And this is actually a big problem. The uh, Mar NASA takes real care to make sure that everything they send up into space is sterile, that there are no germs on it. They really, really, really don't want to drop Earth germs on Mars or, say, Titan, Saturn's moon, places where life might exist because we don't want to wipe out life out in space because our germs landed on the wrong rock. 
Uh, you know, I don't. I'm sure that Elon, Elon Musk uh, made sure his car was very clean before he shot into space, but I don't think it was sterile. And there's a possibility that we'll eventually hit Mars, and this could be a problem. It's so strange to think that anyone can just, with enough money, can throw anything they want into space, and yet people say in New York City technically can be fine for littering on the street. We can't just throw <laughs> anything down on the street, but we can throw whatever the hell we want into outer space. It, it doesn't seem right somehow. Well, you know, once you're out there, there aren't a lot of cops around uh, to stop you. No, it, it's a real problem. There is no real body that polices space. Uh, the United Nations has several treaties about what people are allowed to do in space, but those treaties only apply to nation states, to the governments. So Elon Musk can do whatever he wants in space. Uh, he, you know, certainly the United States government could stop him from launching rockets, but they're kind of depending on him at this point. His spacecraft are supplying the International Space Station with food and oxygen and so on. And so they've given him kind of a pass. And so he thinks he's going to put a colony on Mars in the 2030s. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't have a lot of faith in him, but we'll see. But if he does that, it's kind of an interesting question. Are those people Americans when they land on Mars? Or are they Elon Muskians? You know, is he their god king, you know, at that point, because they'll be entirely dependent on him to get back, <laughs> to eat, to breathe. Uh, and there will be no oversight from the United States government. I know I got totally off topic because you were asking about research. <laughs> well, it's OK. That's interesting. I'm just mad about that car. So back to research. So for research, yeah. So I spent a lot of time uh, just going through press releases. Uh, I, you know, contacted a couple uh, companies to ask, you know, for their marketing materials for their various spaceships and so on. But really what it came, the most important thing I did actually was end up talking to these astronauts. And I didn't intend to do it originally. It, this was going to be a, a horror novel with science fiction elements, right? It was going to be mostly a horror novel. And I know how to write a horror novel. This is, you know, not my first rodeo. And so I didn't think I was going to need to do a ton of research for this. I thought, okay, it's an alien environment. I can make it up. I can just, you know, say what I want it to be. And it was my publicist who said, well, you should, you should talk to some astronauts. Why not? You know, find out what they have to say about what it's like to be in space. And I was like, oh, don't give me homework. I just want to get working on this book. Uh, I was already, you know, on a tight schedule. I had all these deadlines. But so I said, OK, fine. And so I went out and talked to these astronauts. And it was the best thing I ever did in terms of research. It was so amazingly cool and fun and interesting and just fascinating. And it transforms the book. Originally, the book had been very technically accurate. It, there was a lot of detail about how the spacesuits worked and how many pounds of thrust a given rocket engine could put out and so on. Really dull stuff, honestly. Uh, the problem with doing research when you're a novelist is that you can get caught up in it and you can start thinking that things are interesting uh, because they're interesting to you, but whereas your readers may not care. So talking to the astronauts let me find out some of the human elements of what it's like to be in space, what it's like to live in space, what it's like to work in space in ways I never thought that I could bring to this book. <clears throat> and the result was just magic. The, the book is so much more interesting now. It's so much more fun to read uh, and it's so much more human. The characters just pop now in a way they didn't before. 
um, because these astronauts were so generous with their time. They just we talked for hours and hours about, you know, what's it like, what is it like to eat a hot dog in zero gravity? You know, what is it like to sleep in a hammock on the space shuttle? You know, what is it like to walk outside the space station in a spacesuit and look down and there's nothing underneath you? And all of these human moments came out of those conversations. So that research that I did talking to these astronauts, I think transformed this book in a way I could not have imagined when I started to write it. Well, that explains the feeling I got when you were describing Sally Jansen's going outside the spaceship where I thought, now, how did he do this? Because he's never done that. But of course, some people have. And it's good to know that you spoke to some of those people. There are definitely elements, as you said, of horror in this story. At its core, it is, I suppose, a horror story. So what makes a good horror story? This is definitely a horror story, and I, I want to make sure the people who pick up this book know what they're getting into. So it's, yeah, it gets scary. There's there's violence, there's death, um, and it's uh, a lot of suspense, uh, a lot of terror, and a lot of people in peril. So, yeah, this is not a happy story about astronauts. This is not The Martian. Uh, certainly, The Martian in, in the in the Martian anywhere creates a situation of peril, but then it's all about solving that problem. My book is much more about surviving, if you can, the problem. So I've written a lot of horror novels, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about why does anybody ever want to read a horror novel? This is a question that we ask often. Why does anybody want to ride a roller coaster? It's a terrifying experience. Your body cannot tell the difference between riding a roller coaster and being in a terrible car crash. Your body has exactly the same reaction. It pumps adrenaline into your blood. Your fear responses go through the roof. You go into fight or flight mode, but you're trapped in a little tiny wooden car, this rickety little thing, and watching your own death rush towards you. People line up for hours to do this. And when they're done, the first thing they want to do is get back on. So why do we like this? Why do we like being scared? And I think the answer is, and I think you kind of alluded to this earlier, it ends. Uh, a horror story has an ending. This is what I discovered in my time writing horror novels. The horrors of real life, the things we're truly scared of in our own lives, don't have an ending. They go on and on, and we know that we'll probably lose the battle against them. We know we're going to die eventually. And the characters in a horror story may very well die. They might be they might die horrible, gruesome deaths much worse than anything we'll ever experience. But then the book ends, the story ends, the film ends, you know, the movie stops running and the lights come up in the theater. And we get this incredible sensation of catharsis. We get this moment of relief. Oh, it wasn't real. It didn't actually happen. It's over. And so I think a great horror novel, a great story of horror, and I'll let the critics decide if this, is, if this counts, is all about finding that moment of catharsis, pushing the reader to a moment where they don't want to read anymore, but they have to, where they're terrified of what's going to happen and that they feel it in their own body, just the way your body feels like you're going to die when you're on a roller coaster. And then letting the reader go, 
You know, you, you, you catch them and you, you trap them and you toy with them like a cat with a mouse and then you let them go and they're fine and they're safe. Uh, and maybe they have a little chill down their spine afterwards and maybe they, they, they get a little creeped out thinking about what just happened. But they have that great experience and then it's over. Do you ever scare yourself when you're writing? I do. I'm. I, people sometimes ask me what I'm scared of as if, as a horror writer, I should be, like, completely fearless. Somehow I'm jaded and above it all. No, not at all. I think all horror writers uh, tend to be people who are very anxious and have a lot of anxiety in our lives to begin with because this is how we – it's our therapy. This is how we work it out, right? We, we uh, If you write something down, it's, it's not real anymore, right? So, um, yeah, no, I scare myself all the time. I scare myself writing this – Kind of, I scared myself doing research on this. There were some things I discovered. So without spoiling too much, a lot of the book takes place in conditions of utter darkness. Uh, there are long sections of the book where there's just no light at all and the characters have to kind of grope their way around blindly. And it turns out that darkness is – Something we're all terrified of when we're little children and we're supposed to get over that. No, you should be terrified of darkness. Darkness in of itself will kill you. It it, it, it raises your cancer rates to spend too much time in the dark. It raises your uh, stress levels to the point where you will get heart disease. And it'll make you hallucinate faster than anything. I came across this thing. uh, Oliver Sacks wrote this great book called Hallucinations. And he talked about this thing called The Prisoner's Cinema. And the the idea of The Prisoner's Cinema is that people who are in solitary confinement will start to hallucinate within hours. If you don't have any kind of stimulation uh, for the eyes, the brain just starts putting images in front of you. This happens in the dark to a a point where you cannot control it. People who live in caves for long periods of time, why would anybody do this? Scientists do it if they're studying bats or something, whatever. Uh, But people who live in caves for long periods of time just start hallucinating. They see things. They see entire scenes in front of them. They see people they used to know. They see people they have never met before. You know, they see just horrific crimes happening, but they also see beautiful landscapes. And there, you can't control it. Your brain just takes over and starts showing you things. It's kind of terrifying. The scariest part is something that uh, actually mountain climbers experience a lot too, which is the, the the third man syndrome. And it's not necessarily a man, but the, there's this thing that happens to people in isolation in, when they are cut off from human contact for long times. They'll start imagining there is somebody else with them. And it's called the third man because it used to be when you had two mountain climbers, they would start talking to a third person in the middle of the climb. If you'd ask them, who is that person? What's their name? They wouldn't have an answer. It's not like they thought, oh, that's Frank, you know, our, our other climber. No, it's just the brain imagines another person there. And there are stories about mountain climbers who like would turn around to share their food with the the third person and suddenly realize there's nobody there. And just the terrible sadness of realizing that person isn't real. So, yeah, I got terrified researching this book because I learned so much about what the human brain does in these conditions of isolation and darkness. Well, you've written about zombies and werewolves and you've written about aliens So the big question, monsters versus aliens, which is more fun to write? Who would you most like to be friends with or have dinner with? 
those are two very different questions. So monsters are much more interesting to write about. Uh, monsters have their own agendas. When you write heroes and villains in a story, human people in a story, they typically will act in very stereotypical ways, ways human beings act. They will do things that human beings do. Uh, if they don't, the story falls apart. It doesn't feel real. Monsters aren't beholden to that. You can have monsters that do outlandishly bizarre things and if it makes if it makes logical sense for that monster, great. Uh, but also, monsters sometimes do things that don't make any sense. That's part of what makes them so monstrous. Uh, we don't understand why they do what they do, and that's part of why they're so scary. So, who would I want to have dinner with? Well, no, I don't want to have dinner with a vampire. I'll tell you that much. Um, but yeah, I'd much rather have dinner with an alien. I would love to talk to an alien. I would love to try to communicate with a creature from another planet, another world, somebody who has just experiences so different from mine. And yet we can assume that, you know, if, if someone travels from another star and comes to Earth, what brought them here, we can we can probably imagine their motivation for that and we can start to build some common ground between us on that. Maybe we can even eventually learn each other's languages. And oh my God, what could you learn from somebody who, you know, was born in the light of another star? But the, the real question is, if we met aliens, would they be anything like us? And, you know, would they even recognize us as, as living beings, as, as intelligent? Uh, you know, would we recognize them? Uh, I spoke with uh, one of my favorite authors and a good friend of mine, uh, Sean McGuire, about this uh, a while back. And, and I asked if, if we met aliens, what would they be like? And her best idea was that they would be microbes. They would be germs. And that they would be on some rock, you know, falling through space that lands on Earth and they would be germs on Earth and they would probably just die because they were in an environment they weren't used to and we would never know they were here. And I thought that was the most just heartbreaking thing. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today and sitting down with me in person to talk about your work. Thanks, Rob. This was really fun. I've been talking with David Wellington about The Last Astronaut, which is just out from Orbit Books. You've been listening to new books in science fiction. Please subscribe to the show if you don't already. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. The editor-in-chief and founder of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe, and the editor is Leanne Wilson. I'm Rob Wolf. I'm the author of The Alternate Universe. You can find more about me at robwolf.net and follow me on Twitter at robwolfbooks. Thanks for taking time out of your day to listen. 